That's the last of me magnetic disk space gone. Rubbishy newfangled editing programs. Hang on, me microphone's on the blink. Ah, that's better. This is Missing Episodes podcast calling Something Who. Something Who, can you hear me? Something Who here? I can hear you, Missing Episodes. Go away. What? Now listen. This is Tim Burrows, commander of the TV Reviews Podcast Division. Give me your Apple Podcasts identity registration. Oh, come on, Commander. I lost that thing about 30 years ago. Why don't you go about your business and leave me alone? Here's his DWAS registration, Tim. He's a real old-timer. He's been a card-carrying fan for about 40 years. Richard Smith. I might have known. You know him, Tim? Of him? Out on Gallifrey Base, where I did my first tour, he popped up from time to time. Have you ever run across any of these old-timers? Well, not from the dark times. They think they're a law unto themselves. They don't like us either. Why? Well, these old-time fans like Richard were some of the first to go out into deep fandom. For a time, they had the place to themselves, going to conventions and comic marts, writing the fanzines, stamping each other's addressed envelopes. They're a wild breed, Paul, and they learned to live without a concept of canon. And then the internet came along and anyone could be a fan, right? Yes, even these two. Oi, I've been a fan forever. How come we don't get proper parts in this sketch? Doesn't bother me. Gives us more time to chat about the James Webb Space Telescope. Yun! <laughs> I considered watching more Gordon Gostolo because I want to know what he what, what he, he sounds, sounds like. What else does he have done? I mean, Australian, mm, yeah. So I gather that would explain. Mm. Well, what would something. it? Some anyway, sources say Australian and some say New Zealand. Mm. New Zealand. Mm. His obituary, rather snarkily, says everybody says Australia, but actually, I oh, think okay. you're fine. Hello and welcome to the podcast where we take something old, a Doctor Who story from the original series, compare it with something new, one from the new series, and add something borrowed, that sketch, to make Something Who. Yes, it's Something Who podcast, episode 55. I'm Richard and we're back to discuss a couple of piratical Doctor Who stories. First we'll take a look at second Doctor story, The Space Pirates, from season 6. And after that, we'll chew over the 11th Doctor story, The Curse of the Black Spot, from Series 6. And with me to demonstrate that they know their R's from their elbows, <laughs> we have both hosts of the Missing Episodes podcast, Paul. Mm. Hello. Hello. Yeah, hi. And special guest, Tim. Ah! <laughs> and also joining us, we have science and astronomy writer, Giles. Is it ham night yet? <laughs> <laughs> and we have graphic designer and Dalek expert, Gav. Happy New Year! <laughs> Hooray. Hey. Oh, I wish I'd said Happy New Year. <laughs> when, well, when's the cut-off, Tim? <laughs> a neighbour wished me a Happy New Year this morning, and I lectured them on the cut-off. <laughs> 
I've still got my Christmas decorations up. You can, can I have a lecture, please? <laughs> I put what, them up so I put them up so late that I thought. I mean, sure, it's a movable feast like Easter. I mean, if you put them up really late, you can keep them up late. Isn't that how it works? Yes. That works. Just in leave my them up house. all year round. Well, maybe I do. Well, if anyone lectures you on it, maybe just claim you're um, Eastern Orthodox or something. So, <laughs> okay. So you only have Christmas on the sixth. I wasn't yeah, expecting that's to need a legally late. binding uh, get-out clause, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'll try it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's kick off then with The Space Pirates, written by Robert Holmes and directed by Michael Hart. Tim, you wanted to get in quick with your fact. <laughs> <laughs> I did, and I'll tell you exactly why, because I last appeared on this podcast for the gunfighters, and the most amazing fact that I had uncovered was that the, the director of the gunfighters, Rex Tucker, was the father of Jane Tucker out of Rod, Jane and Freddy. <laughs> and that bloody Giles gazumped me. I think it was Giles. Yeah, was it? I think so. I've hated you for it since, so if it was Richard, I apologise. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to get in my director fact, which I stumbled upon on the interweb. Right. Which is Michael Hart, whose only directorial uh, appearance for Doctor Who was the Space Pirates, is, was, the brother of Tony Hart. Wow. No. Of Heartbeat. That's amazing. Oh, Mr. Hart. <laughs> yeah. My so so we'll, 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 we'll take Hart from that fact. And, oh, oh awesome. yeah. And that's all I have to say about the Space Pirates. <laughs> Bye. Now I'm trying to imagine Michael Hart direct, trying to, to concentrate on his directing job on his technically complex program while a little plasticine man is jumping up and down out of the yeah. corner of his vision, annoying him. Did he direct all the morph sequences? Yeah, they're, no. they're much like Ridley and Tony Scott. They have that sort of symbiotic <laughs> relationship. It's got a rotten reputation, hasn't it, the Space Pirates? Well, it, well, it does. <laughs> hmm. Normally, in any five fans, you can at least four of them are guaranteed to hate it. <laughs> any random grouping. I think, as as an opening gambit from me, I'd say I think it's one of those stories that doesn't easily yield to a synopsis. And I think for years, <laughs> we you know it was one of those stories where all we had was a synopsis. But, you know, so before the audios came out, before um, we you know you could see that one orphaned episode which doesn't necessarily show it off to its best it, it was a synopsis that was kind of confusing because you know it, it, i mean either you, you you kind of throw the surprise elements into the synopsis in which case it just you know you haven't had enough of a twist one way to see it as a twist another mm. or it's just very confusing because there's too many minor characters and there's a lot going on so so yeah i, I think it's a story that's hard to get a handle on from a few lines well, from my from my point of view, I never read the Target book. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. I just never did. And my first encounter with the Space Pirates was episode two on yeah. the Troughton years in 1990-ish. Mm-hmm. And episode two is a bit of a strange beast. And I think it really is similar to Enemy of the World 3. Yeah. in the way it probably misrepresents the story as a whole. And in this case, more dramatically, I think. Because in episode two, you have the heroes trapped in a small set for 
25, well, it's not 25 minutes because they don't come into it for about seven minutes. Yeah. And they're talking amongst themselves for the amount that they're in that episode. And by the way, I don't think they split up for the entire story. Interesting. Is that the only Doctor Who story where the Doctor and the companions are in every scene together? Oh, well, no, they do split up actually just a little bit where the Doctor gets ahead of them when going to the Liz 79. Uh, But that is the only micro bit because the resolve to the cliffhanger, the resolution to the cliffhanger for episode four. Six. Five. Sorry, five. Okay. Yes, at the start of episode six, they quickly catch up with him. Yeah. But. if Go this on. had been the Crotons, I would have said that that was a mark of it being a story that was written for a different format and then adapted to Doctor Who, i.e. a story that originally had one hero and the writer hurried out to you know, replace that with three characters. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, but it isn't, is it? It was apparently written especially for Doctor Who, so there's no explanation for that. Carry on. Yeah. So in episode two, you've got this strange setup where you've got the, the three heroes trapped in a room. Yeah. And then you've got the introduction of Milo Clancy, but this is supposed to be a pirate story. And Milo Clancy is very obviously a cowboy, yeah. so that's slightly <laughs> <laughs> that's slightly jarring in yeah. in your expectations of watching some piracy. Mm. And going back to the enemy of the world three, he's the comedy character, and you get an offbeat, weird comedy character in Griff the Chef. Mm. So the the it's slightly similar there. Yeah. And then the rest of episode two is is. Um, <laughs> long scenes of General Hermac and Major Warm, who seem to be acting like they're both in completely separate productions yes. from the Space Pirates and <laughs> from each other. Yes. Um, <laughs> there's 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 some awkward space words going on, which I held against Robert Holmes for a while. Mm. You know, like he's likely to explode, like glycerol trinitrate and mm. and so on and there's awkward space words when you start getting into episode one and 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 then so you've got this very odd single episode yeah with longers in it with with nobody no interaction between sets of characters mm. and then when you ex- expose yourself to more of the story episode one well you've got piracy in it mm. and that's good You've got, thankfully, we've got some nice model work, and yeah. I think that's rather pleasing. Yeah. But you've got Hermac again and and Warn in these painful-ish long scenes of exposition. I mean, for God's sake, you've got literally two minutes worth of Hermac expositing by the cunning ruse of an announcement to his crew. And it's all slightly too long. But, oh, and also in episode one, the TARDIS regulars don't turn up for like 15 15 minutes. minutes. I suspect that the structure of episodes one and two may be a byproduct of the fact that it was originally a four-parter. Exactly. Exactly. The story outline, I believe, was originally due to be a a four-parter. And what we end up with is Terence Dix's dogleg, don't we? We end up with Derek Sherwin, but Terence Dix talks about it a lot. He's talked about dogleg. Oh, sorry. Sorry, I thought you meant the script editor for this story. No, but, but, you know, Terence Dix's term, the dogleg. So you end up with this 
two-episode introduction, which is long and drawn out and has got tons of exposition in it. But by the time... Uh, but here's the twist. I quite like the world-building. And I quite like the sense of space. And I quite like the sense of, of patience that you have to have while they go from A to B. Mm-hmm. And then when you get into episode three and beyond, and the Doctor and Jamie and Zoe start interacting with first Milo, and then thankfully finally get to Tar, yeah. you get a nice Doctor Who adventure. Mm-hmm. And a few twists, and some interactions, yeah. and a few mysteries, and a bit of fun room escaping and you, you so suddenly on and so finally forth. start to believe that Robert Holmes may have come within spitting distance of this script <laughs> <laughs> yeah and and so my very long ramble slagging off episodes 1 and 2 is basically to say it's not his fault there was turmoil behind the scenes they were struggling for scripts that he had to extend his original script by uh, idea by a couple of episodes that was badly done and immaturely done i would say and then it becomes quite good, and that's that, that. That's my opening gambit, anyway. Hearing you say "tar" in your fruity tones just made me wish there'd been a Jolly Jack Tar joke somewhere in. Or I didn't. <laughs> yeah. But uh, you know, it, as it doesn't play on the piracy theme at all, really, it doesn't have any fun with it, does it? Not for the last time tonight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Interesting couple of things you mentioned. Milo Clancy's quite clearly a cowboy. I gather Robert Holmes wanted to write a space western. Hmm. And I don't know at what point it was rebranded as Space Pirates. There are a few bits of space piracy crowbarred in, but only very minor. There's a reference to, I think the Doctor says, should we not parlay? And there's, you know, there's a a few shipping, bits of shipping terminology chucked in for good measure, Mm -hmm. birthing the ships. But by and large, yeah, it's a a Wild West story, isn't it? It's the gold rush, it's miners. Yeah. Mm. It's it's wagon train in space. Wagon train to the stars, <laughs> one might oh, say. There's also the disguising of the pirate ships, isn't there? With the nose cone. Oh yeah. Either. Oh yes. But in a in a in a in a, a naval pirate thing. Yeah. I can't be, believe I hadn't be, spotted the, that. They'd be you know running a different flag at the at the mast. Mm. It's this this brilliant piece of exposition. It would be even more brilliant if it hadn't been completely accidental. I mean, if, if, if Madeline Isigri had been desperate to say to him, oh, and look, here's this, you know, our ships all look like this. But, but no, he, 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 he sort of discovers that by accident. But then it turns out to be highly important ruse later on. It's, it's yeah, slightly odd. One of my big notes, agreeing with you, Tim, on the world building, and um, for all its faults in its first episode and its second I do like Robert Holmes peppering his scripts with these notions of a bigger universe outside the four walls of that studio set. Whilst the big info dump General Hermack's announcement is fairly indefensible as a piece of dramatic writing, it is the episode's equivalent of, I would be tempted to say an opening narration, but I would suggest a yellow font crawl into the background (laughs) telling you the status quo of the galaxy as it stands. And I love the fact that Mm. however badly it's done, we are presented relatively quickly with the situation and we learn about New Sarum and its lost beacon. I like the dialogue between the pirates as well, where they establish that the the brush fire wars being fought in three sectors are keeping the Space Corps busy and that's allowed piracy to flourish. 
and these details create a sense of depth to this galactic world that Holmes has created. And he loves yeah. to do this, and he does it in his synopses, endlessly filling in irrelevant detail that never makes it into the script. He does. I like the fact that when he talks about the, the planet Tar, he says that it, it's exposed to so much ultraviolet light that you can't get life on the surface, which is why mm. all the all the bases are under underground. Oh, and he talks about the fact that... Um, he establishes there's a market for Argonite in the in region Magnum, and none of these names are important. And it just it has that Star Wars feel of all these places might come back in further serials down the line if space pirates revisited. The other Star Wars similarity I noticed was the and quite enjoyable is is the used future yeah. dysfunctionality of Milo's ship. Yeah. Mm. When uh, spoiler alert, I presume we can get into spoilers. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's only for sixty years, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> when they discover Dom Isigri and Milo, Milo and Dom start to reminisce. Mm. It has that whole uh, Han Solo and Lando reminiscing over the Millennium Falcon vibe. Uh, they talk about old times and old space adventures. And there's even a reference to um, the, the the fastest journey they achieved, the Space Pirates equivalent of the Kessel Run, gets mentioned. Mm. So there's these nice little things. There is a lot that reminded me of Star Wars. There's a lot that reminded me of Star Trek, and it's obviously it's obviously a decade ahead of Star Wars. Yeah. It's particularly with the V-ship going overhead. That of course, I was just about to mention that, that opening shot, shot of the V-ship. Yeah. Mm. I mean, that model work is better than some of the stuff attempted 10 years later in Doctor Who. Mm. But the Star Trek stuff as well. Star Trek hadn't aired in the UK at this point. So we we didn't have a sort of cultural touchstone for spaceship adventure language that would become common parlance. So I liked General Hermat calling down to the engine room for more power. And just all this stuff that you take for granted with Kirk shouting at Scotty. But of course, that was yet to come on British television screens. And it's, it's preemptive of a lot of space adventure stuff. And it's easy to get complacent and see that it's all kind of a bit passe now. But when it's mm. done first, this wasn't cliched and um, unimaginative. Yeah. The thing that, that, that remind, makes me think Star Trek as well is, you know, you know how Star Trek brings together a cast of people from different parts of the world in, in a single crew. And, you know, clearly here we've got General Hermak is from Planet Rada. Um, <laughs> wh- you know, whereas... Ian Warren is, is is clearly a a character who comes from a nineteen sixties American sort of um, action serial. I mean, maybe he's the man from Uncle or something. Mm. I don't know quite what he's what he's trying to achieve with that. And meanwhile, Madeline is is Sigri. She's she's quite RP, but she's sort of a modern actress. I mean, she reminds me of a performance, I suppose, a bit of of Jacqueline Hill. But it's that kind of you know, she, she's not quite as stagey as as. Um, as her Mac. And then, of course, as you say, we've got a cowboy as well. So it, it does make you... I mean, either Michael Hart is deliberately going for saying, look, you know, there's there's all these different people from all these different places coming together in one, in, 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 in one story, or it, the actors were just running wild. I'm not quite sure which it was. I think you glossed over exactly what Gordon Gostolo brings to the party there. You didn't even try. Is that because he gets a whole... I hope it's because he's going to get an entire segment to himself later on. <laughs> You are right. The, the the cast, or some of the cast, I should say, are just playing fast and loose with the material. Certainly Gordon Gostolo, he is as bad as Patrick Troughton for taking a rough approximation of the paragraph <laughs> on the page mm. and trying to get to the end of a sentence to cue the next actor. 
that that character as written is nowhere near as much of a cowboy as it is in the performance. So just things like he adds howdy when he meets General Hermack. He changes performing fleas to jumping grasshoppers. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> All these little things. Oh, and like he says to Zoe, he calls her my little chickabiddy. And just all this stuff, none of that's in the script. He is winging almost all of the cowboy stuff, okay. which is fascinating. Of course, because, you know, what would you expect from an Australian actor brought to play a character of uncertain origin? Oh, and if you, if you thought he says newfangled a few too many times, it is in the script at least once. But then he just liberally scatters it throughout virtually every line of dialogue he's got in reference to the Space Corps. Everything becomes newfangled. I've always had a soft spot for it because I this is one of the episodes I saw in 83 at the BFI. Ah. Um, NFT retrospective that um, that's Jeremy. Um, they were selling NFTs. Yeah, I was just wondering whether to make an <laughs> NFT in the nineteen eighties. Did you get in on the ground floor there? <laughs> <laughs> no, so there was a they they showed three orphan episodes. That was the screening that I I went to. Three awful uh, episodes. Or, orphan. It was oh, um, abominable two, and I can't remember what else off the top of my head. Maybe we had abominable web and web one mm. and this, which mm. is an interesting. Mix. It would be, wouldn't it? Mm. Yeah, I can only I can only agree. It's a shame that the um the good stuff is kind of where we where we run out of because you know episode one is more or less a retread of episode you know episode two like a retrospective. So you, you we know we've got a good visual idea of what's going on there, and then just when the story gets interesting, we kind of run out of the visual reference for what's actually going on going on with it, which is a bit frustrating. I think that's one of the reasons its reputation suffers is because it's such a visual story. Mm. I mean, episode one, there's no dialogue for two minutes, mm. and it starts with a with a with an action set piece of a raid on this thing. Mm. Yeah, and it's no wonder that people feel kind of alienated from it mm. because because it's all just. I mean, it's not all visual storytelling as we've established. Some of it is monstrously clumsy uh, textual storytelling, <laughs> but but there's loads of bits which are purely visual set pieces mm. yeah the whole of the story is full of amazingly visual stuff i mean apart from the model work thankfully we got the model work from episode one but i want to see what the planet tar looks like in space the script direction says as the ships close in we see mountains and craters mm. and all this kind of thing mm. there's a nice bit in episode is it episode three where clancy's menacing the the tardis crew and then there's a yes. the attack by the by the ship and then the whole of episode three is just larking around, getting to know the the list sixty nine. Mm. There's the, uh, the the teapot mystery, famously. Teapot mystery. <laughs> I was going to say something about that. Tim knows about the teapot mystery. I know about the teapot mystery because you've been Gordon banging Gosselow on about it all bloody day. There's, Gordon uh, Gosselow thought the saw the character as a man who drinks a lot of tea, and decided to incorporate this. There's a no? teapot. Mm. There's a te- when the ship goes into dra- full yeah. power, whatever it is. There's a the, the script says there's a sound effect of a teapot smashing. Okay. But the, the script direction says the doctor catches the teapot and holds it in his hands. Okay. Right. So, 
We need to know. But then then it goes on to say that they get the sp- spare teapot. That's another stupid detail. I mean, Robert Holmes just chucking <laughs> stupid details in for no point. But one of the details is the spare teapot is made of the same metal as the ship is made of. And just like random stuff <laughs> yeah. just amuses me greatly. I did like the... I, know, I listened to the, the, the back half on... Uh, on the soundtrack only, I didn't have time to uh, watch. Unfortunately, the, the recon, but yeah, I did like that moment when clearly the the uh, ship is going hell for leather and being shaken around the place, and Zoe is apparently wandering around, wandering around, offering people tea. <laughs> as as the female while they're doing, be their... doing. Is, are you saying that's not right, Giles? Are you saying that's no, not... no, presu- no? I, I like it, you know. But presumably while they're <laughs> while they're all doing their high speed, everyone leaning in the same direction because we're accelerating. Acting. It's not the some... funniest of, of home scripts, but there are some fun bits in it. There's some mm. nice little lines. I like um, I like the little jo- how how polite Zoe is because she says it's it's rude to point, especially if you've got a gun. Mm. And um, mm. I like the stupid slapstick where the doctor says to Jamie, "Don't make a noise on the ladder," and then he kicks over a chair and he says, "Well, I wasn't on the ladder." <laughs> uh, it's nice. There's loads of nice yeah. little bits, and Clancy is great and fun. And funny. There's another funny bit where the doctor's talking about magnets, and he's saying, you know, if 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 you get the opposite poles together, if you get the um, the right poles together, they'll the sections of the spaceship will mm. pull themselves together. And and Zoe points out that if you get the same poles together, they'll fly apart. <laughs> and they're doomed. <laughs> and he just says, "Don't be such a pessimist, Zoe." <laughs> just before Paul jumps in, I've not, I've just remembered another problem with episode two that episode one doesn't have. There are no bloody villains in episode two. Yes, well, yes. quiet. Yeah. <laughs> I was waiting for you to say that. Episode one of these gets Kevin the piracy going. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Anyway, Paul, you were going to say... That would be like if Enemy of the World 3 didn't have Salamander in. I mean, so he, it's actually <laughs> even worse situation, isn't it, than yeah. an enemy? Mm. Half the question of the space pirates is who are the villains? So, I mean, you do have Clancy because his, his allegiance isn't established. Do you Ooh. think that's genuinely supposed to be a mystery? And for well, how it long? Come, it comes and goes. I mean, it, it's he's not introduced as a hard villain, but his his motivation is uncertain. And then the, the TARDIS crew become a little bit suspicious of him. So but Surely the, the almost... only possibility in terms of what we've seen already is that he's Cavern's boss. He would have to be yes. above. Hmm. Yeah, so, which would be a really good reveal, I suppose. Yeah. It'd be a better reveal if people weren't pointing the finger at, at him as, for being the villain. I don't know. They hold it off until is it episode three where he he comes in and rescues you know comes into their cell yeah and rescues still quite them. They, they kind of, of him, tantalise it until that until that point they leave it hanging there. I I need to ask you some more questions before we finish about exactly who who wrote this because I I didn't do any research. I didn't even know for sure that it was pitched as a four part and extended. I mean I may have read that in the past and then forgotten it again, but certainly that's what I would have assumed from watching it. I mean I would have. Are we are we assuming that it was the first few episodes that were padded out rather than the padding being added in um, throughout just because that's how it feels? Are we all? Yeah, that's, that's an assumption. I, I think don't, that's I a don't good know. assumption, but yeah. I, think um, so. I, I also think the rest of it is slightly oddly paced. And that, one, that once you have the reveal that Madeleine Isigri is in league with Cavern, mm-hmm. they sustain that relationship for about 10 minutes. Yeah. Hmm. So it's oddly paced. It's got a pacing issue throughout, but he, he, he he's obviously hmm. stretched it and pulled it like hmm. dough. He's you know he, he he's pushed it and pulled it from a four-parter to a six-parter. What I want to know is, I literally want to know who wrote it because I I agree with you all 
that this is I've watched it much quicker than last time. We, we watched it as part of our ongoing Doctor Who marathon, the wife and I, and um, we got stuck in the space parks for months. I, it was, <laughs> I was probably the shock of being back on the recons again after thinking we yeah. left them behind. But we, anyway, you don't want to know about that. I was just fixated all the way through on try, on trying to spot Robert Holmes's fingerprints, trying to see his DNA, trying to see any signs or latching onto any sign because for a long time it doesn't feel you can't believe. He's had anything to do with this, even less so than the, the Crotons. But the the ideas are good, and the plotting is good, and the characters, and the character motivations, interactions, they all have a good reason to be doing what they're doing. All that is solid, as mm -hmm. you would expect from Holmes. He, so even early on, he's got that craftsman-like quality. The big difference is that the dialogue is is mostly very weak, and also... All of those things I mentioned before are up front. They're all explicit. As you said, there's shocking amounts of exposition. All, all the lovely... Um, <laughs> yes, he's got all these lovely little asides to the world the world building out beyond the screen. But normally they're tossed away so lightly. And I'm wondering, it's partly the, the dialogue, partly he's, it's being serviced by actors. He's normally extremely lucky with his actors, Holmes, isn't he? And bring out the best in what's there and toss off these little sides. Whereas here, everything seems more laboured when you've got Jack May doing the exposition. You just think it's going to end. He sounds like he's going to keel over, doesn't he? His lungs are obviously failing as he tries to get to the end of a sentence. I think people have always thought, oh, I <laughs> the fan way of looking at this is, ah, this is Robert Holmes' second story, and this is the first one that feels a bit... It's, we can see him taking baby steps towards being Robert Holmes, because there's a funny character in it. There's a funny cowboy. So we can see this is the start of Holmes doing his... But it's, it's not as simple as that, is it? There are many other signs that he is involved in the structure of this story. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I'm suspicious of the dialogue. Now, is there any possibility, I've come at this the long way, that this expansion from four to six possibly was written by somebody else? Because I would easily believe that two-thirds of the dialogue here was written by somebody else in a very great hurry. Yeah, yeah. Was Robert Holmes ever young is what I went to, to ask. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it certainly doesn't ever look it in any of the photos. I know that editing duties were done by Derek Sherwin. So if you can believe that the components of this that don't feel Holmesian are Sherwinian, then that might answer your question. But the rest you might put down to short deadline lack of enthusiasm, who knows what. I mean, he was he was writing this, I gather, in an extraordinary hurry, mm. off the back of the Crotons. Mm -hmm. So, But he wrote the Talons of Wing Chiang in an extraordinary hurry, and that's a yeah. story which... Yeah, <laughs> but he, he was in creative control completely at that point and, and had ye years of ex experience on yep. Doctor Who. The, the Jack May stuff as well, that, the, the, a lot of that is extraordinarily clichéd. Yeah. Yeah, I bet you're wondering, not... Ian, why I've let him go. I've let him go precisely because I think he is in charge of everything. This is what gets to me. That <laughs> Holmes never writes like that. He can't really write dialogue that isn't competent. It doesn't always have to be sparkling. And it certainly doesn't always have to be filled with Holmesian double X and, and one-liners. But he doesn't write stuff that's this clunky. That's what surprises me. Uh, Paul, I have but a me... question for you. Yes, please. You're, you're, you're supposed to be a writer. Yeah, as as a an experienced writer yourself, how how would you have had the characters reveal all of this complex world building? I mean, even for God's sake, in episode one, the, the when the pirates turn up after a long arduous 
space journey when they're on Alpha Beacon, whichever one it is, mm. four, one, two, seven. Um, <laughs> they decide only when they get in to express the the the, the, the what's he called the number two dervish. dervish uh, yes. Only at that point does he he decide to expose his concerns about the entire enterprise to Gavin. Paul, what? How would you have done? How would you have revealed all this exposition and world building oh, in a in a naturalistic way? I can only really repeat what I said already about what Holmes normally does, which is that he has it all in his head or on his, you know, his crib sheet. And you only, for a start, you would only put in anything that is, all right, <laughs> you'd split exposition and world, bid, world building. You put your world building in if it's sparkling and funny. So you probably chuck a bit of that out. If you're talking about exposition, you would only put in as much as you need. You you space it out more. You put you put it in the hands of funny characters if you can, or you or you, People say it while they're expressing an emotion or they express it while they're doing something. They don't just stand with a PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> and um, General Hermack could have done his three-minute speech on the tannoy, I mean, public address system, if he'd, been, if he'd been crying <laughs> and doing jokes. Yeah. That would work, wouldn't it? <laughs> Juggling. I mean, yeah. um, if you're in if you're in a movie, the obvious thing to do is to have people on the move charging down a corridor. To you know, yeah. you do half the speech as the the camera's watching them coming towards you, and then you flip to the, a different angle. They turn a corner. You do that. You carry on. I mean, you've got all those sorts of tricks you can do if to tighten it up. If you're on film, you're editing it. Um, if you're in a studio, then you just and if you're an experienced TV writer and you know that the buck stops with you, the you can't rely on the actors and the directors to do it with any pace, so you've got to write the pace in. Hmm. It is possible that this is naivety from a new writer. I could believe that a lot of these problems come from somebody who's just written the Crotons. The flip side of it is, I can't believe that the person who wrote the Space Pirates goes on to write Spearhead from Space hmm. and, Very soon and, the, afterwards. and Carnival and Monsters and Terror of the Autons immediately afterwards. It's, um, it's too big a question for here, but it makes me think was what I think of the third Doctor, Robert Holmes, in him already, but he just didn't have the confidence to, mm. nobody would opened the floodgates, nobody said he could write like that. It's interesting that, that, that Robert Holmes is the master of the four-parter, isn't he? I mean, fundamentally, everything that he writes is four parts apart from this one, yeah. Talons, and then ultimately yeah. the two Doctors. This wasn't supposed but, to be... Yes, this would have been another four-parter, wouldn't it? So, so, so clearly, that seems to be the the, the natural length of his stories, and and the, the really good one. I mean, with the exception of Talons, which, as we've already said, it isn't really a six-parter. It's a it's, it's a couple of stories tacked together. This one is is um, is an outlier, isn't it? And the only other thing I would say is that um, this may go absolutely nowhere, but the story of Holmes is that it reminded me of me of most was Caves of Androzani. I was just about mm. to say that. <laughs> yeah, because that if you're looking for the, the home story with the fewest jokes in, and it has it has humour, it's very, very black humour. Mm. But Caves of Androzani is either him doing this again, but with the benefit of experience and getting it right, or, yeah. mm. or, or this is, what's the alternative? I'm saying this could have been Caves of Androzani if we'd had better actors and direct. Well, no, of course not. But mm. it's that's another link that shows it's the same person. This is largely a serious piece with with villains who are... Desperate people. In- yes, there's, there's, there's not a lot of there's not there's not a lot of shade in them, is there? They they mm. are they, they, when no. they're bad, they are bad. Yeah. But you know, General Chelak, General Hermack, you've got to have a system. They're not the colourful seventies so. Holmes villains. You know, the, no. the big Grangueniol people. These are mm. people down there in the dirt getting there. I'm not saying um, Spearhead from Space isn't measurably better in quality, 
But it's not very funny, Spearhead from Space, either, his next one. This is true. It is a, it is a more gradual pro- progression than I'm mm. pretending it is. <laughs> Terror of the Autons. I don't, I don't think it's so much of jokes as colour and, and speed yep. and mm. wit and invention. It's, it's starting to bro- paint on a bigger canvas, which then to which humour is added as one of the textures. Uh, Holmes already had a CV as long as your arm by this point, though. And he'd been... Yeah. Yeah. He'd been TV writing for about eight years, so it's not mm. really, you know, teething problems except possibly with the format. Yep. You wouldn't say. It would be absolutely fascinating to see the draft scripts. Mm. These are these are the questions that I always love to have answered, and mm. the only writer we can really get into this properly with is Terry Nation because we've got his drafts. But wouldn't it be amazing to have? All of these well, drafts. I'm not so sure, given the time scales, uh, that there there would be too many drafts and polishes, and I think that's probably the problem. Mm. Uh, well, mm. you'd be surprised. I mean, they would hand drafts in, and and the script editor would generally reprocess them and turn out a rehearsal script in in the following week. And depending on the script editor in question and the quality of the original, in in the opinion of the script editor, there would be small to wholesale changes. So, yeah, I mean, it may be that it was just rushed through and Derek Sherwin had little or no time to work on it, beefed it up a bit, tweaked a few things. But it would be interesting if he just thought, why is this written with all these jokes in it and took all of the funny bits out? We just don't know. But maybe yeah. Holmes's script was... Like like Christopher H. Beardman on Megalos or something. Yeah. Why is this written with all these jokes in <laughs> I only finished watching this half an hour before we recorded, but I, I did manage to just cast my eye over Pixie's essay on it, because I didn't want to sound like a thicko. And um, I did notice that uh, at some point that Sherwin had instructed Holmes to put more Doctor and Jamie and Zoe into episode four. I mean, for goodness sake, he's only in half of... <laughs> <laughs> episode one. He comes in yeah. a third of the way through episode two. Yeah. Episode six, so, they're only on film because they're off doing. And, and games, yeah, correct. In, in episode six, yeah, it's film inserts and audio inserts, mm. and that works pretty well, I think. It does, I think. Considering, and if you didn't know mm. on the audio no. okay. beforehand, you wouldn't know. There's one. There's one tiny bit where um, Troughton's audio is played in for the conversations with Milo Clancy. Yes. And and because Gostello is playing so fast and loose with his lines, <laughs> whoever's in charge of pressing play on the tape recorder is really struggling. And there's, <laughs> there's a bit where, tra- where the doctor reacts <laughs> just a half a second before the thing happens <laughs> because <laughs> Gostello is just doing whatever he wants. He's doing Jimmy Stewart, isn't he? Really? Yes, he is. Yes, like uh, Alan Partridge interviewing himself. <laughs> <laughs> Kids, do you love him? Yes, he's, he's sort of old Jimmy Stewart out of the sort of nineteen sixties westerns, mm. isn't he? Rather yeah. than anything else. Yeah. yeah. Anything I can tell you about Gordon Gosley is that he made a he made a career out of playing the character of Bardolph from Henry the Fourth, Parts One, Two, and Henry the Fifth. Right. Yes. I don't know, mostly because he had a weird nose. And it's an allegedly humorous part. I think okay. that's... He does it in The Age of Kings, the 60s BBC mm. Shakespeare soap, and uh, on stage, and, and again for the BBC in the, in the 70s, 80s. 
But... Did he go for any interesting accent choices there? Uh, not that I remember. I think he does rural. I think he does sort of mamaset. Mamaset. From yeah. what I remember. And quote me on that. But I mean, he can do the classics, so you'd think he'd be able to stick to a script, but maybe he didn't mm. think the space parts was worthy mm. of the time it would take. Didn't uh, well, Who's the actor who who barely showed up as Dominic Seabree? Uh, oh. Esmond's. Some Knight? Larby? Yeah. He's a big deal, isn't he? Mm. He, he? He's Shakespearean, isn't he? Didn't he mm. do Henry, one of the Henrys? So many Henrys. Yeah, Shakespearean eyebrows. And <laughs> pictures. Cut that bit. There's a, there's a, fanta- <laughs> there's a fantastic picture of his Henry V on, on his Wikipedia page where there's, there's bristles going all over the place. Mm. Wild eyebrows, yeah. wild tash. So I'm right. He did a Henry. He did. He yeah. did a Henry. It's back in again. It's back in again. De-edit <laughs> that again. bit, Richard. <laughs> edit it backwards so you hear me saying not to edit it first. And then, good good story for Zoe. Hmm. Yeah. And there's a really neat bit in, is it episode three, where she shows her astrophysics prowess and mm-hmm. does all the calculations. A little call mm-hmm. back to the wheel in space where she yeah. was introduced explaining the problems with the silver carrier that was all very neat and then there's a lovely little bit of yeah. uh, character stuff with her and Troughton yeah really nice and a nice bit where she doesn't know how to um, what candles are oh yes which is actually uh, it's actually someone paying attention to the to who this character is meant to be and where they're meant to be yeah. from and it's nice to actually get the flip side of the Jamie stuff which all, yeah. all too often gets ignored she did encounter candles previously and not raise a concern though in the mind robber in the mind robber uh, yes but isn't it nice that that Jamie was brought in and soon his character is forgotten apart from very token yeah. jokes throughout yeah. Victoria is brought in and she's soon dressed as a, a swinging 60s girl and yeah. is just the perils of Pauline but it's a nice thing a very nice thing I think that with Zoe just thinking off the top of my head she she retains her essential character traits in The Invasion. Mm-hmm. 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 Crotons. The Crotons, for sure. Seeds of Death, not so much maybe, but it comes back in force in this. And she saves the day. Mm. And, you know, she produces pages of maths. And mm. it's one of the few instances in classic Doctor Who, I think, where the, where the, where the essential character core... Is is revisited time and time again. It's a very strong effort from her uh, for her character. That was nice. Mm. Mm. There is good character stuff in this. I think Cavan is a really good villain. Very underplayed, and mm. yeah, he unpleasant. is. Yeah, yeah, unpleasant. Excellent. I think Madeline is terrific, and I think is a fascinatingly nuanced character for because she's aligned with the villains but rapidly it turns out that she wasn't that keen to get that involved and then she's coerced into helping and then she goes through this but 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 she wasn't i thought the obvious thing to do with her was she was coerced into helping because she knew her father was being held hostage and that isn't the case at all In fact, it's a very odd serial because a lot of the characters don't meet. Madeline doesn't meet her father. Hermac doesn't meet anyone apart from Madeline. You've got all these characters acting in completely different studios. It's the opposite of (laughs) Star Wars. 
where everyone turns out to 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 be related (laughs) not only meet each other but they turn out to be nieces nephews fathers sons and grandchildren in hermac only meets poor old um what's his face ian Ian, oh, no, I didn't mean him. I no, meant no, the, no. What, the guy, <laughs> no, George, George, what's his face? Who's who's manning the computers? Oh, the other guy, George Pen. Payton. Payton? Payton? No, uh, George George Layton. George Layton. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, I got Pen. He 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 only deals with him. Warn. He meets Madeline in episode two, and that's the only interaction he has. Well, they do. They, Milo Clancy wanders onto the bridge. Oh, very Milo, briefly. of course, yes. In episode, it all happens in episode two. Episode two yeah, is yeah. brilliant because <laughs> Hermac <laughs> gets to meet other people. Yeah. <laughs> but for the rest, it's like the other five, sent him. Episode there's also two that strange is bit where where Sorba, you think he's dead. He disappears mm, yes. from the plot for a couple of episodes. He shows back up again. He's injured. Yeah. He, they killed. carry him around for a while, and then he dies without doing anything more. Then he does. So, yeah. Yeah. Whether that's just to show us just how cruel life is, or because he had loads of loose ends. It's a bit Eric Say with that. It's all about Eric Attack of the Cybermen. Uh, I think it says something where the worst episode is the one where Jack May is allowed to interact with other characters. <laughs> <laughs> He's a shocking actor. <laughs> I just wanted to say that out loud. I wanted to put that on record. There, there, there are some quite long scenes in this, aren't there? I mean, that's the that's the other thing. I mean, it is. It doesn't feel overly stagey, except when when Jack May's talking. But it does have that that construction that that some of the scenes do do, do go on for yeah. quite a long time. It's not this. You know, there, there well, are other stories in this season that are that are much more rapidly cut than that. Is that it? Is it fundamentally it? They they had to expand it from four to six in such a hurry, fifty percent extra material that rather than adding any extra subplots. They didn't do what they did in the seventies and add an, an extra two-part prequel on the beginning or something. Well, they they just expanded almost every scene, inflated every scene by fifty percent with extra dull dialogue that nobody had that any may, time. Yes, to maybe, maybe, but that that means there would be two episodes crammed with exposition and then two episodes of, of unless plot. they unless they shifted some of the cliffhangers at but, the risk of bugging up our um, our speculation. <laughs> yeah, he says, um, I'm checking out. Um, Shannon Sullivan's site, which kind of conflates an awful lot of stuff from various places, and apparently it was commissioned as a six-parter from the outset. Rubbish. But Holmes, but Holmes would later recall that he originally intended for there to only be four episodes. So apparently it was it was commissioned as. Six yes, it certainly wasn't late in the day. That it certainly wasn't apart. late in the day that it that it was expanded. It was it was a, it was at storyline level. Mm. Patrick I think. Mulcan on the Radio Times says it was very late in the day. Uh, so so presumably, and that. But presumably, it's that would imply it's fully. Don't holds. tell me the Radio Times is wrong. I mean, that's I mean, <laughs> my, the, the bottom of my world has dropped mm. out now. I meant to check the uh, the official Robert Holmes biography by your yes, pal. Yes, me too. Mulder, I but I forgot. Yeah. So good. So presumably Holmes would have would have turned in six episodes unless he had unless he had help along the way. So he would have been probably expanding and desperately padding his own ideas. I mean, frankly, that is. Yeah. I mean, you you do well, get you do get a pretty egregious re- repetition of the um, and, you know, bless bless the restoration team. You know, who work who work miracles, but it yeah, it tries your patience, and they they just repeat the same heist sequence about three times, don't they? With the um, then you get two you get two attacks on on the space beacons in episode one, 
before yeah, you, you get before one, you get then to the seven, one, then four. Yeah, yeah, before you get to the one that the Doctor Jamie and Zoe. Are I on, mean, so this this must. Show I think we can assume how that's time they, <laughs> This is how little time they had. If you had enough time, you would add two more episodes worth of plot somewhere. Hmm. You because Doctor was not above get captured escape get captured escape you we know that you can stretch out a story indefinitely you've mm. had another planet somewhere but the, clearly there wasn't enough time even to plot out two episodes so they just had to expand what they had that, that this must be the proof or indeed two planets because the other <laughs> planet that they have what's it called gav lobos 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 is a red herring yeah mm. so they only spend have a lot of time they go to lobos, to lobos and then come back yeah yeah <laughs> Which is planets. But those yeah. last four episodes do feel quite full of, of yes. stuff going on. Mm. It, do, it doesn't, oh, it doesn't absolutely. feel like absolutely. you can kind of... We're all being shaded by the shadow. Shaded by the shadow? We're all those, impressed by the by episode stuff. two. It's haunting. And that is, yeah, for me, I mean, the fact that it keeps moving, keeps changing location, there's new mm. characters, is what saves it because um i think if you if you've got the choice between a, a, a dull six-part story that keeps moving on and a dull six-part base under siege which is stuck in one place then mm. i would much rather have a former because at least you've got some novelty <laughs> it may be something new boring each week but yeah, yeah i'm mean, saying it's the monster boring. of peladon is it it's not you know <laughs> there is incident and, yes. and 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 i go back to the point that from episode Halfway through episode three onwards, it, it, it's damn fine. It's it's good, enjoyable. I would rather find some more of this than, for example, Wheel in Space. Is that does that make me a bad person? Have I gone too far there? <laughs> I, I, I would rather watch this than Wheel in Space. Yeah. Mm. Well, hey. So maybe maybe not episode one. Uh, I, I mean, I know t- t- Tim has particular reasons for wanting to see Wheel in Space, but. No, I, I absolutely agree. I'd, I'd much rather see anything than the wheel in space. But I'm, just, I'm laughing because Gav is is the biggest apologist for both. And asking him to choose. Oh, I've given him a Hobson's choice. There. Asking him to choose is is yeah. No, I think Hobson's I'd go choice. space pirates. Oh. I mean, because oh, well, the wheel in space. I mean, we're we're very lucky with having three and six and four and five don't have a huge amount the only one like you say a wheel in space you really want to see episode one yeah yeah Uh, and there's some interesting stuff in the rest but what blows my mind with the space pirates is how often people say it's boring and i can only assume they're not getting past episode two i mean i don't have the issues with episodes one and two that uh, seem to prevail but i think fairly objectively three four five and six pretty incident filled and i do think that it's a result of it being a missing episode that you fail to appreciate how much stuff is going on i mean the end of episode three and in episode five there are there are laser battles and in episode three you got zoe spies some stuff shot on film at ealing of people dismantling the things with uh, the welding torches and then they have a they have a gunfight and then they fall down a hole there's a laser battle in episode five but throughout there's, there's this interesting sort of patchwork shifting of genres. I mean, it's ostensibly a pirate story, but it's really a Western. But it's actually in space. But then just in case you're getting bored of that, it suddenly turns into a macabre gothic mystery set in an Edwardian study <laughs> with, a, with a decrepit old bloke who comes crawling out of the woodwork. And I just, I just think it's mm-hmm. full of interesting little twists and turns. Gav, there's so little that exists by way of photographs. It is extremely Mm. missing. How do we Mm. know 
about the Edwardian study, apart from the audio clues, I'm I'm genuinely naive on this. Uh, there's a there's a, a grandfather clock or a, a long a long case clock. Yeah, it's in. The, what does the script say? The the script says that it's decorated as an Edwardian study. Right. Um, and then of course you've got the plot point of the eight day mechanism proves that it's still in use. And and Clancy talks about how Dom was an old romantic and had all of these antiques shipped from Earth and all the books. Does he refer to it as Earth there? Good question. Because Pass. I'd have to look uh, that just, up. Otherwise, just, it's home planet. You're right. Only because I noticed be. that they they only refer to home planet throughout the rest of it. So it was quite a jolt when they said, "Oh, Edwardian." So he thought, oh, "Okay, it is." There is a there is a sketch published somewhere of somebody's recollection of the episode, right. which is quite a nice little. Uh, Hmm. pencil doodle of uh, Edwardian drawing room, which is rather nice. But yeah, I mean, that is a weird left turn for hmm. no particular reason that I can fathom. I mean, maybe a cost-saving measure, but... Uh, yeah, and suddenly you're dealing with, with candles and putting wax on a carpet yeah. and, hmm. and and setting fire to rags. And that's a, yeah. that's a left turn, isn't it? It is. It's a left turn into Talons of Wang Chiang, which is where we'd next see an escape routine I mean, it's almost. It's also he he recycles it partly in Brain of Morbius, uh, lighting stuff so the smoke comes out the ventilation to attract uh, someone to come and unlock the door and then ambush them when they come in. So so space pirates. It's also reminded me of the Ice Warriors, where you've got a future Earth scenario and they're yeah. raiding they're raiding the BBC props department to populate a set mm, with yeah. old stuff. Just you know, the chateau or whatever it is yeah. in. Yeah. in mm. In the Ice Warriors, yeah, no, I have no clue as to that. I, I, I would believe it if that was just Robert Holmes having a bit of fun. But I could also believe it if somebody said, "What's the absolute cheapest way you could do the next <laughs> unusual set?" I mean, it's mostly a mystery story. It's a smuggling frontier town vibe half the time. Forty ers in the tunnels and that kind of thing. So to have a an Edwardian or indeed a Victorian study just doesn't really feel out of place with the likes of Milo Clancy and and I really like that. It's I mean it's not steampunk, but it's it's in that weird middle ground of of what you'd call ordinary future sci fi and this kind of blending of styles mm. to do something mm. a little bit more interesting. Just thinking about this whole thing that the I when does when do we really start getting space up for the kind of stuff in in Doctor Who, I'm, I'm just thinking back, and I'm, I'm thinking, is the wheel in space? Is that the first story that really features a lot of spaceship yeah. work? Because it's obviously, yeah. I mean, this this was going out. I was looking at some of the transmission logs online, and they so I think they were showing they were showing clips from Apollo Nine or highlights from Apollo Nine in orbit around the Earth while they were broadcasting. While they, while this that's, was a, that's a really interesting point, isn't out. it? And obviously, Seat of Death, we always say, well, that's yeah. like a bit of a response to... Which came first in in the timeline? Seeds of Death or the Space Pirates? Seeds, because this is the penultimate story of the... Yeah. No, I mean I mean in terms of Earth history. Oh. Human history. Oh, we see. Oh, wow. Well. Mm. well, as Giles just pointed out, they never mention Earth. So, for all we know, these are all aliens a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. I don't know. And they don't Seeds believe of in death is, with Edwardian studies. <laughs> reveling, reveling in the space program, isn't it? And mm. it, it, it's ta- it, it's it's taking a cockeyed view of the space program and saying that's all old hat. Mm. We're now on team hat. 
which was ironically That's... accurate mm. to go to the moon and then not bother again for yeah. decades. <laughs> and then we have the very next story. Well, forget all that because mm. we're now in a space age proper science empire fiction universe. Mm. Yeah, science fiction universe, and and the two are quite jarring. Mm. I wonder which came first. Mm. Sequentially, yeah, sorry, are we talking about in within the fiction within world? within the Doctor Who universe? I think Seeds is meant to come first, oh, and implied yeah. that implied that's close to Earth. It's implausibly close to now, isn't it? That they they invent this life changing transmat. So why aren't they teamatting everywhere? Why aren't the pirates teamatting from <laughs> from? <laughs> they quite, they quite explicitly have, don't believe that that technology exists. That's um, Clancy mm. Ducant doesn't believe that Doctor could have materialised his TARDIS inside the beacon. So, but then that's kind of true for every other Doctor Who story ever written afterwards. <laughs> fantastical yeah. technology nobody can conceive of. Does teamat need the? I can't. Oh, I can't remember. God knows, it's so long since I've seen that. Does teamat need the? Transmit a station on the moon to, and then base stations on sure. Earth. Yeah, teammates so controlled can't... from the moon. But they they don't they they both don't feel very in mm. universe with each other, do they? They don't. Yeah, <laughs> then let's, let's 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 put this way off in the future, along with androids yeah. of Tara, Tara possibly being one of these degenerate Earth mm. colony civilization type of. It's like trying to watch Star Trek Discovery and believe that it comes before Captain Kirk. Mm. Even though they've got <laughs> ten times better technology and and tardigrades, yeah, just... and and the next generation never happened. Deep Space Nine never happened because these were broadcast back to back. So it's an odd it's an odd twist in in that yeah. I think I mm. I think you've got a, a very competently written Seeds of Death. Mm. That is what it is, you know. I know it's got its detractors, and I, I I know it's a bit of disposable fun. And then you've got an extremely competently written the war games, and and this bit of a, a bit of an inconsistently paced thing in between, with lots of uh, Jack May throughout. Mm. Jack May, I mean, he's not only not very good, but he he ruins the whole <laughs> ending by fluffing his line. <laughs> he says one wrong line that that makes the nonsense of the entire denouement. So it, anyone trying to follow the plot based on the names of the spaceships has no chance because he names the ships wrongly. He says, uh, I've got 12 minutes to launch the beta darts in order to go and get the baddies. What he was meant to say was, I've got 12 minutes to destroy the beta darts because they are the baddies. Mm -hmm. yeah. So if you're trying to work out who's got the minnows and who's got the beta darts and you're listening to him, in the, you, you've got no chance. Hmm. Yeah, you can blame him for a lot of things. He's or alternatively, we just imagine this. he was under stress and, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, and General Hermat just got the, the wrong word. He, he, you know, he's middle-aged. He's just, just one of those days. It's a shame. I like him in um, Adam Adamant. You think on uh, on paper that the episode six countdown, where they've got Troughton having to the Doctor having to defuse the bomb in time, and you've got the, you know Shane Warne closing in on which one is it, Gav? The uh, minnows, whatever or her the, Mac. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it, it's uh, oddly lacking intention. The beta yeah. dot. You, the, it felt on audio, and we don't have the visuals, so it's unfair. It just felt a little bit oddly lacking intention there. I think they could have done a bit of a more more of a heartbeaty countdown, because on paper 
on paper that's brilliant that is perfect episode six climax he's got seconds to do it he he, he diffuses the bomb and there's 007 on the uh, counter or whatever mm. happens in mm. countdown things yeah it's just oddly lacking in tension i think the weird thing is when the music stops because it feels like it's all building up nicely and all of these plot threads are converging mm. into this situation and the music's building and the, the it, it's intercutting relatively quickly by Space mm. Pirate standards between these three scenes. Mm. And then the music just sort of tails off. And then the last 30 seconds of this tension is set to complete silence. And it's bizarre. Well, mm. maybe it's close-ups of... I don't know, you've got the camera script. Is it, is it close-ups of Triton with sweat dripping off his brow? Ah, well, now you, now you ask, we don't know. Ooh. Because episode six... All the regulars are shot on film, and ah. there is no proper ah. camera script for anything. Ugh. So we don't know what any of the bomb defusion scenes look like at all. It just simply adds to the fascinating conjecture because we know that when Doctor Who is given the time, far more than the money was important, if they had the time. They could work wonders. You look at the the opening sequence of episode one of the Web of Fear, which is shot on shot and edited on film, and it looks like a movie. And so th- that's how all of the regulars were shot for Space Pirate Six, hmm. all shot and edited and beautifully lit. One might imagine uh, on film ahead of time at Ealing, including this tense bomb disposal because they were doing the war games they were on location for the war games or something they had an extra long uh, location allocation for the war games so they were they were pre-filming the war games for too long for them to have them in studio for episode six of the space pirates as a result madeline's role was expanded she took some of the dialogue that troughton would have had in conversation with pirate man and milo i think so her role, I think, was improved. And I think she comes across really, really well. She goes on, she goes through the emotional ringer, however improbably, discovering her dad's alive and then but they don't, being they threatened do. with him being killed again. And they never fire Chekhov's missing estranged father, do they? <laughs> <laughs> they? They never meet. No. They meet off camera I'll at the end. They, they do fire... <laughs> And that's um, Chekhov's ribbons on the ventilation grill, which <laughs> in our surviving episode two, you get a nice shot that shows the ribbons on the ventilation grill to show the uh, air conditioning is working, the oxygen's pumping. And then the, the whole sequence in episode six where the oxygen is killed allows the ribbons to go limp <laughs> to denote oh, that they brilliant. are all going to die. And then and then there's a, there's a camera script direction that says when the when the air is reactivated, the ribbons pick up again. And it's nice to know that, knowing that we've got shots of that in episode two just flapping away in the background. Beautiful detail. Well, let's give Michael Hart the benefit of the doubt and assume that the absence of audio is because of tense close-ups of Troughton choosing wires or mopping sweat from his brow to try and defuse the bomb in time. We're never going to see it, so let's just assume that's the case. Can I give a quick shout out to World War Two technology being put into Holmes's script, where um, the Liz Seventy Nine deploys copper needles to oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> oh, distract yes. 
Shane Warne's mm. radar. That's World War Two technology. It's not quite what happens, but it it's close enough. But what but what's again? What's interesting is this must have been so visually interesting because we know the model work was really good, and so they sprinkle these needles out into into the cosmos. I want to know what that looked like. So so the Liz deploys these needles into space and then the missile runs into them and they get magnetized to the hull and it slows the missile down. And then the, the minnow runs into the same cloud of needles and they all adhere to its hull. That sounds really tricky and difficult to achieve. And maybe it looked dreadful. I don't know. But it's just fascinating. But also I love the idea. I think you've probably hit the nail on the head, Tim, that, that that's a better explanation. But I thought they were he was sprinkling nails on the road to to let the tires down no, the car all, follow him. Um, first Yours of all is I call it World War Two, which is my personal pet hate. What you mean is WW two. I call it like, it should be called the Second World War and I can't believe I call it World War Two. Um but Operation Window. Operation Winkle. Window. To winkle out was the spies. The uh, on the world at war, you've got old Bomber Harris, curmudgeonly and miserable and racist in his chair, defending <laughs> defending his slaughter of millions of innocent civilians. But when they bombed Hamburg, by the time they were bombing Hamburg and and, and bombing them back, they they would deploy aluminium strips, which would disrupt the German radar. Uh, or as such that they had at that time and that was a direct rip-off which I thought was which I well I I gave myself a little brownie point for spotting well I gave myself a brownie point for nails on the road to letting the tires down so we both win really (laughs) we do in a way in a way in a way way. way. Uh, one one final sort of star star trek nod also is that the end of episode six, unaccountably, everyone ends up laughing for about five <laughs> seconds too long, which is a very Star Trek <laughs> ending. And, and, and yet you, you say that that wasn't um, in, in general circulation at the time. No, but I'll tell you, I'll tell you something else. Go on then. How often did Doctor Who not end with the TARDIS crew, not only not leaving in the TARDIS, but... A, a basically a, an additional adventure away from even finding the TARDIS. Yeah. I mean, yes, he could has have Big Finish that that. filled that niche? <laughs> um, There's ooh, got to be a whole ideas. range to, to, to have Milo Clancy and the yes. TARDIS oh, crew. Trying to get you could to have it. umpteen acres of fun. I mean, the Gordon whole of Gostolo episode three has a son is who's just... an actor. So maybe... Wow, well, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> drop, drop them a note, but... Yeah. Um, Make sure I get some kind of uh, payment for that idea. Hmm. Yeah, it's remarkable that that that, that episode ends with them not leaving in the TARDIS. Here we go to um, do our best to find it. And then unknown period of time elapses before the war games start. Hmm. It could have been written by David Whittaker, couldn't it? Because the entire jeopardy of, of, from the Doctor's point of view and Jamie and Zoe's is trying to get back to the TARDIS. Mm. You know, and they they have that in the wheel in space, and they have it in the first season. Sprinkling a bit and of mercury, and you'd be away, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah, 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 and a food machine here and that. Yeah, they're just <laughs> trying to extricate themselves and go home. Yeah. Well, they so do the opposite be... of the food machine, where Gostolo actually eats <laughs> a boiled egg. Yeah, yeah. So this could be season six A then, couldn't it? You know, season six B is after the war games. This is, this is the bit in between, isn't it? I think we're all getting royalty checks here when we finish catching <laughs> on this. <laughs> yeah. 
I was just going to say this would be an ideal point at which to uh, take a break yes. and go off and have an off-screen adventure before we uh, reconvene for the next story. That's very good. We'll be back soon with more on the Space Pirates and all of our discussion about Curse of the Black Spot. But in the meantime, here's a clip from my other podcast. Emily, what's that big pile of foliage doing on your desk? Oh, that's specially for January. Why do you ask? Uh, Nothing really. It just seems a bit out of place. New year, new me. Every day I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I see, I think. Is that a new high-definition camera you've got, Richard? Oh, oh, yes, it is. Well spotted. Any reason for the upgrade? Well, it's my New Year's resolution. Oh, dear. (laughs) That's terrible. Anyway, on with the show. Hello and welcome to If It's Hurting, It's Not Working. And if you can believe it, we've reached episode five already, which is all about New Year. So we often like to see the new year as an opportunity for a fresh start. And that can mean a big change in our lives or some tweaks to make it work better for us. We're continuing to post material on our web page, which is ifhurtnot.work. And that's where we've got links to all of our podcast episodes and also links to all of our social media accounts. So it's the one place where you can get to everything that we're doing. New Year, I guess, offers us a good opportunity, both in our lives and in our work, to have a fresh start. And I guess one of the reasons why we find that really useful is because it's easy to get stuck in particular patterns. I've got a couple of New Year's resolutions that I've I've thought about, and they're both similar in that they're both to do with focus, but they're slightly different in in terms of the emphasis. I don't particularly make New Year's resolutions. I make pledges to myself of things, little things that I want to get done because life's so busy these days. So I try to pick one that's for myself and then one that's for work. You can go in and, and still do that. You haven't missed your opportunity where you can just have a little sit down and a think but just don't procrastinate too much. <laughs> <laughs> Very nicely put.